0: I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. We are on a mission to make you remarkable. Helping me today is Min Kim. I read about Min in Susan Cain's book, Bittersweet. The story of Min's relationship to her Stradivarius was so remarkable and fascinating that I had to bring it to you. Have you ever bonded with an object, a camera, a car, a surfboard, or in Min's case, a musical instrument so much so that it completes you and becomes part of your soul. What a great sensation. Min began playing the violin at the age of six and by the age of seven she was accepted as the youngest student ever at the Purcell School of Music. At age 16 she was the youngest ever foundation scholar at the Royal College of Music. She was gifted a Stradivarius made in 1696 and she devoted her life to making remarkable music with it. Unfortunately, in 2010, Min was eating with her boyfriend at a restaurant in a London railway station, and her violin was stolen. Kim suffered intense trauma and grief from this. Min's book, Gone, A Girl, A Violin, A Life Unstrung, explores her experiences when her violin was stolen, when it was recovered after she had settled with her insurance company, and how she now feels about someone else owning it. I'm Guy Kawasaki, this is Remarkable People, and now, here is the remarkable Min Kim. I found myself envious of the fact that you could find a calling and a physical device like your Strad that meant so much to you. Now, some people might say, well, God, that's so shallow. You know, things don't make you happy. But when I read your book and your relationship with your Strat, you and the Strat were inseparable. It it made you, you made it, right? It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. I wish everybody could find something in their life that just becomes you and you become it. It was a beautiful story. I think
1: everybody does, though, you know, I think, I think really, you know, what it boiled down to was that it just happened to be the passion in my life. So starting off as a musician, starting off as a violinist, age six and a half years old, I was in love with the violin and music. For as long as I can remember. And so I think when I found my strad at the age of 21, it was almost like that feeling of, you know, I'm, I'm grown up now. And it took me a really long time actually to find, to actually grow into a full size violin anyway, because I was a very tiny child and I graduated to a full size instrument, m- maybe a little bit later than would be considered average and so when I did find my Strad it was only the third or something full-size violin that I played on and of course you know with the Wells the a Stradivarius wasn't it so I mean you know it was just an incredible incredible yeah it was a magical moment when I found it and I just knew from the first moment that it was the one it was just that chemistry i i I know it sounds like i'm talking about a person but it 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 sort of is actually it's that sort of relationship i can totally
0: understand i can understand to the extent that I can understand without having gone through the experience as much as you have, but I think it's a very understandable emotion in a very limited way, not to draw a comparison. I love to go surfing. I love to surf. And I think people develop a relationship with a particular board, just like this. And you spend years searching for that magic board, just like you spend years searching for that magic violin. And, At some point, that board becomes you, and it's an extension Mm -hmm. of you, and it empowers you. I don't want to compare a board to a strad, but (laughs) that's as I I think that's a
1: really good um, analogy, actually, because so you're (sighs) it does become you, and and especially because you're spending so much time alone practicing with this violin, you become so familiar with absolutely every millimeter of this, you know, it it does become an extension of your being, your physicality. (laughs) And every violin is unique. That's just the way these instruments, That there is a personality, there's a heart, there's a soul. Even if you try to clone one, if you like, you know, and and there are violins. In fact, I've got one right now, which was actually a copy, which is a copy of my violin teacher's uh, Guanarius. And even though it is the exact replica, if you like. It has a completely different personality. It has a completely different heart and soul. It's a little bit, as you know, I, I, I thought a little bit about Dolly the sheep. The, the clone, clone sheep. Yeah. So it's using yeah. the same cells and everything, but it has a different heart and different soul. And that's the thing about in, uh, violins and particularly stringed instruments. But for me as a violinist, I can only speak about it with violin in that way and my relationship with the violin and it becomes a living thing it has its own voice you know and it's yeah. my job as the violinist to actually find the voice in the violin and actually enhance it so my job is actually to bring out the, the violin the violin's voice because it will never change for me you know it will have strops <laughs> it will have good days bad days and I have to work around it. And I think, you know, the challenge of that is part of the reward of becoming so close to an instrument.
0: It's bizarre. <laughs> I mean, this conversation we're having, well, I'm you know, mad. about a piece of styrofoam <laughs> and you about, you know, a piece of wood. But I I can absolutely relate. And, and just as there are, well, not made in the 1700s, my favorite surfboard is made by a guy named Bob Pearson. And he's kind of the strad of his day. Right. And, you know, and he makes boards, but everyone is different. And mm. it's a, mm. anyway, <laughs> we're, we're just going down this hole.
1: <laughs> Do you know, the thing is, again, I think that's a really, really good comparison because I mean, you're in the sea, you, you know, the ocean, you're, you know, you're, I mean, that, that mm-hmm. and music is nature. Music is, you know, it's the universal language. So I think that's a, yes. I think that's a great
0: analogy. Yeah. Okay. yeah. There you go. <laughs> you don't even have to give me credit I
1: love it I love it I love the way uh, this
0: conversation has gone so far my second my second fanboy moment here is uh, I am not a musician and it was difficult for me to appreciate all of the technical aspects of your book but I will say even though I was named after Guy Lombardo if you know who he is but uh, he's a big band leader in Canada but As a writer, I have to say, I admire you as much. So is this your first book? It is my first book.
1: I've always loved writing, though, and I've always loved just free streaming my thoughts. Actually, the book actually came about because during the whole period of the theft and the aftermath and just dealing with all the emotions of it, I was talking to the liaising officer who was dealing with the case and he would phone me every Friday after work, five o'clock on the dot. And he would just give me some sort of update on what was happening with the violin. Sometimes he had, well, mostly hadn't, he had actually nothing really going at the time, but it was just hearing his voice that was so reassuring and a kind of therapy. And it was actually a Detective Rose who who suggested that I start writing down my thoughts as a way of therapy. And so I did, and I'm very glad I did. When I read them back years later, several years later, gosh, it, it took me right back to where I was in my head. And I realised actually that a lot of the things that I'd almost skipped over, like my childhood, my early adult life. I sort of lived through it in a rush because, you know, I was always performing. I didn't have time to sort of think about things. I didn't have time to think about my life and where I was going. I was so kind of single-minded about the violin, my career, music. You were being an Asian. (laughs) Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> One Asian to another, I can say that. <laughs> you know, and as you know, if I ever wanted to talk about my feelings or my emotions, I mean my dear mother, you know, bless her, she would say, No naval gazing. You know, I kept these thoughts, but I've always lived in my inner world.
0: I'm very dreamy and and I'm always daydreaming and first of all, you listeners, if you're getting the impression that this is an airy, fairy <laughs> granola Birkenstock kind of stream of consciousness book. It's not, it is clean. It is organized. It's hard for me. Perhaps there's a writer named John McPhee and he would do things like writing about how a craftsman makes a birch canoe and stuff. And your writing style is very similar. And I just love like, (sighs) I have to do 52 of these interviews a year, which means I read about 52 books a year. So when I read most nonfiction books, I'm looking for subheads and bullet points and, you know, how to do this. Step one, step two, step three. Right, right, right. Yeah. And your book has no subheads. It has pages with very long paragraphs. And usually I hate that. But. I got to tell you, I just loved your book. So bottom line, man, is if this violin thing doesn't work out, oh, I'm you. telling you, be a writer. I
1: have <laughs> to say pages and pages ended up on the cutting floor. Actually, to, to, to be honest, a lot of it was actually because I didn't intend in the first place for it to be such a sort of raw memoir. And when I started... <laughs> well, I hate to tell yeah. you
0: failed, you didn't intend because it I'm sort of came so, that so, way. so it
1: started off... <laughs> really because I was so bottled up and I just didn't feel like I could talk about it. And then it became like when you sort of open the wound, if you like, and it just all came pouring out and then I couldn't stop talking about it. I think I finally stopped talking about it now. I think I've processed (laughs) a lot of what was going on. But yeah, it was cathartic.
0: I know the answer to this question, but sometimes in a podcast, you have to ask a question you know the answer to. There's a part of me that says, oh God, if she wrote this book, Using handmade Tibetan parchment using a 17th century fountain pen with a gold nib, that would just be perfect. (laughs) But I think you use Microsoft Word,
1: right? Uh, I actually do most things in longhand. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I have to say, sometimes it causes problems with my contemporaries because I, I think very few people write in longhand anymore is that right
0: i i can tell you that you and julia cameron do and that is very good company <laughs> right right
1: <laughs> and it's the same with writing music as well i do everything longhand I, I, it's just ingrained in my psyche or something and i actually tried to find some manuscript paper and i could not find any man i'd run out of you know my pads and pads and pads <laughs> of manuscript paper i have. i couldn't find it anywhere i looked on amazon I mean, how can you not find, you know, I mean, it, obviously I could find it on Amazon, but it would take like four weeks to arrive and things like that. So I ended, and I was, it was like an emergency. So I ended up, you know, getting the last page and just photocopying oh it, my. you know, 50 <laughs>
0: times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> times we live in, right? <laughs> There's no <laughs> manuscript paper department in Harrods that you can just...
1: This was an emergency, you see. I I, I needed it, like, within the hour. You know, I'd, like, oh, okay. run out. I got to the last I got to the last page. It's, you know, things like that. And also writing paper as well. You know, uh, what do you call it? You know, those... those Pads of letter writing paper that you used to be able to buy with, you know, the envelopes. God, this is really dating me. Can we cut this? <laughs> <laughs> this <is taking> me-
0: <laughs> Too late. So you wrote it out in longhand on this beautiful paper. <laughs> well, it wasn't and so then beautiful. what happened? You sent it to your editor, and somebody typed it in for you. I
1: yes, I had. Obviously, I had um, editors basically cutting it down to size, and I think that's a really important process, really, isn't it? Because I, you always need the outside perspective. I remember fighting over what I thought were really important paragraphs and really important chapters that I really felt were integral to where I was at the time. I write about when I was 13. I was in a car accident with my violin teacher in Switzerland and I fractured my cheekbone and ended up in intensive care in in a hospital in Switzerland. And the cause of the accident was actually that my teacher was actually driving on the wrong side of the road. And um, there was all sorts of difficulties around that because he didn't want to call the police. I was then taken to hospital. My parents were in London. They weren't around. I was in a state of shock. I was delirious, I think, and wasn't able to have a television. And it, all of these things I said. And for me, it was about highlighting that, incredibly intense relationship that you have actually as a child with your tutor I don't mean it certainly was not inappropriate in any way I have to make that clear but there is a closeness that happens it's like being an elite athlete with your coach they are the person in your head in order to take you to the next levels and he was the closest person in my life at the time. He was preparing me for concerts and that's actually why I wasn't in Switzerland with him at the time. And it was the first time that the cracks of the relationship between um, teacher and student appeared because I realised that the bottom line was he didn't want to do the normal things because it would actually in fact impact his insurance. It was about him. And it was a really big moment in my life because I'm sure you've picked up on the book that the whole sort of narrative really is about, and I didn't even realize until much later that my, my entire sort of childhood to young adulthood was dictated by older, very charismatic men who had a, a direction for me, my life. They'd had my life entirely mapped out for me. And... I felt that was my destiny too, so it worked, but then of course they're human, as I am. And I think that balance, that the human side of the relationship and the career side of the relationship and the musical side of the relationship, to get that balance right is really, really hard and I so appreciate that. And I think my parents not being musicians and not really being part of that scene, they really had to let me go. As soon as I started playing the violin and I went to you know a world-class teacher who was able to take me to that next level, in, in a way, I had to leave my parents behind because they weren't part of that world anymore. And so a lot of my care, even daily care, he would dictate my diet. He would dictate my day's uh, timetable schedule. So it was a very sort of almost codependent relationship that I had with my teacher that, as I say, that was – I've totally gone on a tangent here, by the way.
0: (laughs) But this leads to the obvious question, which is, all things considered, it's – You know, be careful what you ask for. Being a child prodigy may not be all that it's cracked up to be. Or, Oh,
1: I I don't think anybody would ask to be a child prodigy. I I mean, you kind of don't have a choice. In fact, it took me really a long time to even be comfortable with the words child prodigy. I remember giving an interview when I was 12 and the interviewer asked me, so what's it like to be a child prodigy? And I looked at him and he writes in his article, uh, Min looked at me blankly, not understanding the meaning of the word, perhaps. But that was not the case. What I was thinking was, I I don't know how to answer that. That is such a loaded question. (laughs) It's It's like saying, what's it like to be you? You know, because I remember being 10, 11 years old and being singled out by adult musicians and as I say being put in the fast lane and I would and this is not false modesty I would listen I would hear myself play and I would think but I I, I'm really not as good as I could be I'm comparing myself to adult musicians and, and I think maybe that was also part of the kind of psyche of being a child prodigy was that I never really felt like a child. And and actually to compare myself to other children in terms of the musical and technical ability was almost, I, I, you know, that's not where I was. I would play with other children and, and I had lots of friends and then I would leave, I would park the violin and the music side. That wouldn't come into it. But when it actually came to performing music, the violin, no, there was an ideal that I heard in my mind and my job was to bridge that gap between what I heard in my head and to make it reality, and
0: that remains my ambitions yeah so are you telling me at eight nine ten years old you're trying to compare yourself to high uh,
1: yeah i wouldn't say so much comparing like the playing or you know it's 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 more about well i suppose it's 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 really about as I say the ideal voice, the ideal violinist the the finished product if you like, but of course I knew that there's no such thing. It's that whole I what I realized as I got better and I improved was that the more I improved, the more I realized that I couldn't play. And that would make me want to improve more. And then I would realize just how much further. And this started really from when I first started playing the violin, age six. I just always knew that there was so much more to go. There's so much further to go. And when I skipped the, the grades, my grade four, I think, after about four, five months or something like that. And I remember getting my prize for getting. So I got. So I got the highest mark in the country for this grade. And so I had to go and collect this prize. And I'm standing there, and I'm realizing that I'm like six and a half years old or something. And the rest of the people who are standing there are like <laughs> <laughs> 15 or something. <laughs> and I think, oh, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. But I think because it was normal to me, I think any first experiences that you have, it's new. And then it crystallizes as, well, that's normal for me. And it continued to be that way until I got to that very, very difficult age where you're no longer a child prodigy anymore, but you're not actually an adult. So it's that in-between bridging the gap between child Well, we all go through it though, right? You know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> this may this may be too personal a question, but would you want to have a child prodigy?
1: Oh, what a question. I would like to think that if I did, let's put it this way, if a child prodigy was under my care, either as my child or as a pupil, I would like to think that. My experiences will enable me to guide the child. But really, ultimately, it is the child guiding you. I think that is my my wonderful teacher. He once said to me, there's no such thing as a good teacher. There are only good students. The other thing he used to always say was only... Because, I mean, he was a child prodigy himself, and he used to always joke and say... People used to come up to him in later life and say, hey you're Ricci? Didn't you used to be your Ruggiero Ricci? And things like that. And people used to compare him, his adult self to his younger self, you know, all sorts of crazy, crazy sort of things, which he took in his stride and was very humorous about. And I really got it. You know, I mean, he was like, even now, I remember things he used to say to me like, oh, yeah, that's right. Pearls of wisdom.
0: Okay. So Ricci was a prodigy, but Felix and Zislin were not. So, Should a prodigy have a prodigy teacher or should a prodigy not have a prodigy teacher?
1: Oh, that's wow. You are good. (laughs) You have good (laughs) questions. Wow. Okay. I should be on NPR. I shouldn't be surprised (laughs) by the way. Okay. So I've had both and I'm very glad that I had both. I think that I would actually say that Felix was probably a prodigy actually it's just that he had such a gift of recognizing the artist in his students and really nurturing that side of things and I've been told that one of the reasons why he didn't pursue a a concert career he's never actually told me this himself so this is hearsay that he got stage fright and when he used to show me things on, on my tiny little half-sized violin. He didn't have a violin of his own. So he'd take my violin and he'd like show me and demonstrate. And he had the most beautiful sound. Like even now, I've, I'm coming up in goosebumps remembering just his artistry. So yeah, I would say that he definitely had that gift for communication. I'm not saying that Jislin didn't, but Jislin G- was very much from the Soviet school. Of things, So it was very textbook. He was very, sca- you know, he was very technique led. It, it was, you hold your bow like this, you hold the violin like this, and any deviation is wrong. And I didn't really follow that way of thinking. I think it was good for, for my own discipline, actually, to be honest. I think it's good sometimes to have that sort of, okay, so this is textbook. I don't play like that necessarily, and this works for me. But it's it, it's probably good to know what textbook is, and then of course when I met Ricci, he said to me, "I don't care if you play with your feet as long <laughs> as it works."
0: <laughs>
1: and I, so yeah. So,
0: so, as a child prodigy, or I don't is the proper term, former child prodigy. But, um, and you address this in your book, but I'm just curious your current thinking. So, are scales mm. important or not?
1: They are very important. There's an art to scales as well. I mean, scales is music, really. Music is scales, just in a different order. It took me a really long time to really appreciate scales, I have to say. I mean, you know, to start, I never played scales until I went to Jislin, by the way, and I was 15 when I, so I, I played maybe one G major scale over and over Felix was not about scales, you know, he was about the music, but I learned to appreciate the beauty of scales in the way that one appreciates the beauty of maths. And it did take a while, but even like today, I will actually always start a practice session with scales. It's just the most efficient way to warm up. It's, as I say, the music in every note, when you can actually really get to the heart of every note. And, you're, you know, you can actually play a scale with every note singing, you know you've warmed up. So it's a really good sort of barometer to know where you are that particular day. And, of course, you know, there's always on and off days. But scales, yeah, scales are grounding. Scales are good. So, yeah,
0: pardon my ignorance, but just by listening to someone play scales, can you make a mm. judgment about their level of talent?
1: I think I can, yeah. I don't want to sort of assume because, as I say, I think it would be really unfair if somebody really was having a a rough day or there's all sorts of reasons why somebody might not. But yeah, by and large, you can tell within a second. You can actually really tell within two notes (laughs) whether somebody's a musician or not. Really? Yeah. But I, but I I think that's a universal thing, though. I really do, because sometimes we don't know why something feels so good and why something feels natural and magical but it just does yeah
0: i mean not that i view everything in the world through surfing but i think <laughs> i think and i'm not a master I'm, i know, mean, i'm certainly no felix but i think that you can watch someone simply paddle his or her board a few strokes and make a judgment whether that person is mm-hmm. a good surfer Without catching a wave, just how they paddle out. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I digress. So no, well, no, no, no. That's kind of what I was
1: saying. I, I have been in situations where you sometimes make a snap judgment of, 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 of something. I think we're talking levels, though, right? Yeah. It's pretty obvious within a couple of seconds whether somebody can surf or whether somebody can play the violin. But it's how
0: good. Yeah. So. Uh- many places in your book you talk about the multiple mins, right <laughs> right so there's men the person there's men with the violin men without the violin men with the strad men without the strad yeah. men with the amari men without the amari so how many mins are there now
1: oh so many that sometimes my apartment can't fit them all in i think yeah all these different hats that you wear throughout the all you know the switching process I don't know I mean does everybody have that I don't know I mean it's so difficult to know what's going on in somebody else's mind in that way I do tend to change my mind a lot I'll feel incredibly strongly about one interpretation one moment and then the next day it will be completely different or even the next five minutes will be completely different but I think that's part of the creative process and I think eventually actually I, I do find that it does center somewhere i might be schizophrenic i don't know i haven't been diagnosed but so, <laughs> i i do have lots of different personas yeah i think a lot of my friends do say we never know which min's gonna turn up today not quite sure how to take that <laughs> but i
0: <laughs> but if somebody said in one sentence explain who you are what do you say today
1: i'm a human being
0: well okay <laughs> right <laughs> we, we figured that out but i mean are you uh are you a musician? Are you a soloist? Are you part of a quartet? I'm a are musician. A, uh, yeah,
1: I, I, I would say I'm a musician. Yeah, because it's where I started. It's where I will end. And it's been all the bits in between. I've had so many different identities, as you say, as a, as a soloist, as a quartet member. I'm now writing my own music and you know collaborating with other composers and musicians. So, yeah, there's a lot of things. That's what keeps life exciting and I never choose by the way it's not yes. like a conscious decision again this might sound a little bit wishy-washy to your listeners out there but there is a sort of organized chaos but that's the way I like to sort of think about it because the way my mind works it always does end up finding the center and there's such a pull that it's so much bigger than me it's almost like a kind of I have to go with that feeling. or I have to go with that melody or I have to go with that idea or it it kind of pulls me there and sometimes it takes a while to as I say to get rid of the the chaff and to get rid of the noise to get them (laughs) there's a lot of noise trust me and I think you probably (laughs) figured out but you know but it's good I really enjoy the process of weeding out what's unnecessary because it's interesting it's really really interesting And sometimes you come back to that sort of the clutter, if you like, and having gone through the clutter, you're like, "Oh yeah, there's that," and then you come back to it later. So I never think of it as wasted time. It's, it, as I say, it's organized chaos. I know where everything okay. is, but yeah, it, I'll come back to it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what violin is your current partner?
1: Right. So, <laughs> okay, so I'm going to take my time answering them because I'm I'm slightly playing the field. Is that is that a good thing to say? <laughs>
0: Is there a, yeah. is there like a, a Tinder for violins or something? Yeah.
1: Well, yes. Actually, you know what? I I have. It's funny you say that because I do sort of liken it to a bit of a like a dating agency or something because I think <laughs> dealers are like matchmakers. A really good dealer who knows you're playing really well and has a number of instruments that they think might suit you. It is like matchmaking. I'm still playing on the Amati that you mentioned earlier. It doesn't belong to me, though. It belongs to a very dear friend of mine, but it's not mine. And, and it's, I think, just that degree of separation matters to me. I'm not saying it matters to every violinist, but it seems to matter to me. So anyway, I, I did have a violin. I've had a violin commissioned, and it is, as I mentioned earlier, it's a replica of Ruggiero Ricci's Del Jesu. And it is a beautiful violin, but it's modern. It was literally made during lockdown, the first lockdown. So I got it in 2020, and I've been playing it ever since. It takes a really long time to sort of, you know, play into these instruments, and it's very, very different to the Amati. So I'm, <laughs> I am, I'm multi dating. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> 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 Okay. Maybe one look. Maybe <laughs> okay. one day I'll be reunited um, with my strat. Who knows? I mean, you know, I never say never. You
0: know. That's an interesting question because, in a sense, did you not decide not to be reunited? It was a series of events, which I, I won't go into
1: too much detail here. It's, it's, it's all in the book. Um, yeah. It was insurance matters. It'd been three years since the violin had been stolen, and I had already bought another violin in the meantime because I had no idea if my violin was going to come back or not or whatever and so I actually didn't have the means to buy my violin back and that's why it went to auction and it was sold and when I look back I think there are things that could have been done I I, I made a series of decisions that hindsight is twenty twenty. I could have reached out for more help I could have done this, I could have done that could have, would have, should have all of those cliches. But it happened. And as I said, at the time, and actually I still feel this now, what was important after those three incredibly long years of not knowing where my violin was and if it had even been destroyed, I think a lot of people thought it had been destroyed in the police to begin with, because it was too hot, you know, if if you need to get rid of it. But it wasn't because I think the thieves actually realised the value of the violin, the press and, and, and everything. It was well meaning. I think everybody wanted to help get the violin back. But yes, as you say, it put a whole other meaning to the violin. So when it came back, not knowing what happened to it, I always knew, Do you know, I have to say at the back of my mind, I never believed that it'd been destroyed. It was just always alive. That connection was still always alive for me. You always think, is is that just wishful thinking? Is that just me trying to convince myself? But no, I will absolutely say that I just felt that it was there. The connection was still there. And so when it came back and we knew that it was alive if you like that was the most important thing to me and that remains the most important thing to me actually as i say it does belong to somebody else and
0: do you know who it is
1: i know who it is by name because he's publicized it i haven't looked anything up i think you know it would be too painful It really would be too painful, you know, without making it akin to a lover or a partner or anything like that. But it is. For me, it really was my life partner. It was everything. It represented my career, my my livelihood. But more than that, it was my life partner. And it was taken from me, not by choice. It wasn't like I decided, to, you know, we didn't go through a divorce. It was taken from me. Right. And so to want to kind of look it up and find out, it's a bit like stalking your ex on a Facebook. I I don't (laughs) want to know.
0: (laughs) When I say this, I think this is true for me. But let's say that I... I was the buyer, right? Right. And then let's say that I learned all of this backstory. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, if I am the buyer, I'm probably a billionaire, right? I can honestly tell you, if I had bought it and I learned all this backstory, I would give it back to you. I think it would, you know, the, the universe would go back into synchrony. The, yeah. the axis of the earth would shift back to where it should be if you had that strat. I would do it.
1: Well, you're a good person. <laughs>
0: well, I, <laughs> talk is cheap. But yeah, I, I, I really think so. But anyway, if I may ask, what's the status of Matt? Is he still in your life?
1: No. No.
0: That's good. <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: I can only relate to my experiences from my experiences.
0: Sure.
1: And I wrote about that relationship very honestly, maybe almost too honestly in some ways because it was very raw. It was very painful. Actually, a lot of my friends think that he got off lightly. <laughs> They're like, oh my goodness, this happened and this happened. You haven't written that in the book. But it was really important for me to to be as... I almost went completely the other side. I didn't want it to be a kind of diatribe or... You know, that's not what it was about. It was actually about examining like how I allowed things to get so bad, because I do take responsibility for every decision that I've made. I take responsibility for getting into that. I'm, I'm not saying that getting into a toxic relationship, you know, that I blame myself. I'm not saying that at all. But I do take responsibility that I did find myself in that situation. And I stayed there far too long. I think anybody who has been in a toxic relationship will recognize the stages that it takes To get there nobody enters into a bad relationship if you say oh this is a bad relationship nobody goes oh great i'll go there (laughs) it's
0: i was always hoping for that.
1: (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) birthdays and christmases come once no it's death by a thousand cuts
0: well i gotta say when i read that story about him wanting a commission when you bought that replacement violin right that he was discussing with his father a commission or something that is just beyond thunderdome um,
1: yeah but as i say the curious thing about being in a relationship like that is that your reality becomes altered or twisted i i it's really difficult to describe you, you know now i can because even at the time of course my instincts We're screaming, this is wrong, this is wrong. And in my gut, I'm thinking I I can't reconcile the way I think and any decent person I think would think. But then when somebody is arguing with you that it's business and you have to separate personal from business – and I think there was also an element of I'm really not in a good state of mind. I'm pretty fragile, and when you have a lot of pressure from somebody you're actually in a relationship with, you you'll almost say anything just for just to be left alone. Mm. And of course, he didn't get the commission. I, I was still sound of right. enough sound of mind to say uh, I don't think so. But the <laughs> fact that it even got to that stage. I honestly believe, though, that he won't, even now, perhaps, I don't think he will think there's anything wrong. I think there are lots of people out there who who do think yeah. that, actually, it's fair game. I don't want to be in a relationship oh. with that person anymore, by the way. <laughs> I, I actually
0: don't want, well, that's I don't
1: want anything yeah. to do with, with, with yeah. that way of thinking. Okay. But, yeah.
0: So, let's get off, Matt. So-
1: <laughs> you see, you're so- making... I, I, Oh gosh. Okay. This is off the record. Okay. Wow. That was like, I don't talk about Matt. Let's
0: move <laughs> on. <laughs> okay, okay. So now I have an out of the box, off the wall kind of thought for you. And I wish we had known each other back when this happened. Because I think, and you can tell me I'm full of shit and you just guy, what the hell are you talking about? All right. So I give you all that caveats, all those, you know, whatever, right? If I were the CMO of Sony Music when this all happened and what Sony Korea had the first license and it didn't do well, right, and all that, they're idiots in how they market it. What they should have done, in my humble opinion, is market it as, you've heard this famous case of the stolen violin. This is the last recording of that violin by Min Kim. And I think people would have said, holy shit, we got to get this. This is like, this is the precursor to NFTs. This is a limited edition, you know, recording. We got to get this. Which is very different from what happened, right? I mean, this is a great, I, I don't mean i don't mean in a happy way, but this is a very interesting story. I, that's how I would have marketed that last recording.
1: Well, that's because you're a marketing genius.
0: <laughs> I don't know about that.
1: Well, you When the record was actually released two months? No, even maybe a little less than that. So the violin was stolen in November. It was actually supposed to have been released in November. I was actually sitting in the police station, you know, the night that my violin was stolen. And I get an email from Sony saying, oh, this is, you know, this is a schedule, blah, 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 blah. You know, this is what needs to be done. And I just went automatically into professional mode and i wrote back just what a one-liner don't worry everything's fine yeah <laughs> I, I, that's not even addressing any of the things that they said in this email it was yeah. just almost autopilot don't worry everything's fine and so the the record is actually released in december so yeah so it was like weeks after the theft so not a lot of time at all i couldn't promote anything i can't i can't speak for the people who were in charge of the record you know i can't speak well, for the strategy all well, i know was where i was <laughs> in my head at the time sure which was i can't deal with this i just can't deal with this
0: well okay so it's easy for me to say i wasn't there i'm not you etc cetera, etc cetera. but as a marketing person i would have made the sunshine i would have said holy shit this is <laughs> But anyway,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a difficult call to make. I was an artist of, I suppose, moderate success. I wasn't one of their huge million se- selling album artists. I'm a classical artist. Classical artists right. generally are, unless you're like a superstar, classical. And then, again, this is not false modesty. I'm just saying it as it, as it is, you know, I mean, yeah. I had um, a very nice career I wasn't sort of in the stratospheres of Itzhak Perlman or I wasn't that level of famous and so I suppose there's a judgement call that comes with that and they made the call
0: you're looking very scared to call something like this (laughs)
1: It's I'm sure you're it's right. something like- I'm sure you're right. I mean, maybe, I'm, maybe I am convincing myself that it was. I don't I mean, know.
0: I, I mean, I would have marketed it so hard. People would be accusing you of, it wasn't really <laughs> stolen. This is all a PR stunt, but okay, so so
1: Okay. So here's a question for you then, <laughs> if you don't mind. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So you're in charge of the marketing thing. Okay. You're dealing with somebody who is basically on the verge of a nervous breakdown. How do you handle that?
0: If I'm Sony? Mm. If I'm Sony, I say, you know, this is freaking a horrible thing. Perhaps we can spin this into something positive. Perhaps this publicity will help you get back the violin faster. This is exposure. We can try to turn a lemon into lemonade, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Now, this is very callous for me to say, and with a lot of hindsight, and, you know, I know you're like just crushed by this. You never eat in a pret manger again. I know all that, but. I mean, for crying out loud, you know, the football that Tom Brady threw his last touchdown with right in the last game he was going to retire (laughs) sold for half a million dollars. So, I mean, there's something about getting the last thing that this world-class person did with this Strad. I mean, there's a story there, but.
1: Maybe that's exactly it. I think what happened at that time, and I can say this now because. It is in the past and I have moved on from it and I I do feel I'm in a much better headspace. But I think I think even what I just said a few moments ago when I put myself back into that space, I lost confidence. I lost confidence in myself. I lost co- so this record it was the recording of the Brahms Concerto, and you're quite right. If this was a really, really important album. It was the second one that I I, I had with Sony. So my first uh, album was the Beethoven and that did, it it did well. And that's what I mean by it was modestly successful. But this was the one that was supposed to really put me on the map. It was me as an adult, fully grown adult violinist musician, ex-child prodigy. And it was meant to be my, my arrival, if you like. And I lost confidence. And I think that maybe, look, I, I as I say, I can't speak for the powers that be at the time. But maybe it was, because of, obviously I wouldn't have been able to fulfill any of the touring engagements, you know, I wouldn't have been able to fulfill any of the promotion. So in a way, is it better to almost wait until something else big happens? Well, otherwise, otherwise, I'm just (laughs) I'm just putting a different, just putting a little different angle on it. Otherwise, doesn't it almost? And by the way, this is exactly what happened. So you are absolutely correct in that it was the last album with this violin, and it was actually the last recording that I made as a concerto soloist. So yeah, those two things are completely right. By the way, the album's still available. So.
0: I mean there there should be movies starring Michelle Yeoh as you. Have you seen that movie everywhere, everything, every something? Do you know it's showing just around the
1: corner? To me, I was I just yeah, I just passed it today oh, go see and it. I thought, "Oh, I want to see that." Yeah.
0: Yeah, go see it. And if you can understand it, please okay. reach out to me and explain it to me because <laughs> I walked out of that movie saying, "What the hell was that?" But anyway, I know John M Chu, I can introduce you to him if you want to make a movie based on Gone. Two practical questions. So parents are listening to this, talented if not prodigies are listening to this and they say, "So, you know, what is optimal practice?" At some point in the book you say 2 hours is optimal practice. On the other hand, there are people who are thinking you you, you dedicate 6 hours per day. Christie Yamaguchi skates for 6 hours a day. So what's your concept of optimal practice?
1: I still stick by the whole, if you have to practice more than two hours in order to stay on top of things, it's going to be a really hard life. That's not to say that sometimes you don't want to practice more than two hours or you've got a whole load of work that you really need to get through. You're not going to be able to cover it in two hours. But I'm just talking about keeping your fingers in shape, keeping on top of things. I think Certainly when I was younger, I really didn't practice very much when I was younger. I think that's probably why people <laughs> call me a prodigy, because I literally didn't practice. I was allergic to rosin. That was actually the problem. I was actually allergic to rosin. So I, if I used to play the violin, I would start wheezing and have an asthma attack. I eventually grew out of it when I was in my mid-teens. And by then, I think I'd learned how to practice in a very efficient in the most efficient way, if you like. And it really is about just getting into the zone. Cause I think a lot of time that's wasted in practicing is is just the faffing around. And I think what regular practice does, it it helps the brain be able to tune in to the zone quicker. So you're able to go from me talking to you right now and going boom. I'm in the zone and you, that sometimes takes time to get your head from mind you it sometimes it is quite nice to doodle as I say you're just doodling around I'm being facetious when I say wasting time because actually sometimes you know spending the whole day practicing isn't the most pleasurable thing you'll want to do but actually practicing itself I mean I can say yeah once you get into it it's fine Practicing is so boring. It really is. Playing music (laughs) is is wonderful. But practicing, because sometimes you are practicing the same bar thousands of times. I mean, really. Yeah. Literally thousands of times. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Because you get into a headspace, you get into the zone, as I say, and you start hearing the most micro things. And you're changing things in such a subtle way, but it makes all the difference. And once you're there, it does become obsessive. I would just say to anybody who's listening, who's practising, just keep at it, really, because it does yield dividends. Now, that sounded really boring. I shouldn't make practising sound really boring, (laughs) because actually it is really necessary. (laughs) Chrysler, Fritz Chrysler, the great violinist, Fritz Chrysler, he said he got to a point where he was performing so often he was performing like twice a night that he said he didn't need to practice whether there's truth in that but then I've heard other people saying you know if I don't practice one night I notice if I don't practice two days my pianist noticed and if I don't practice three days the audience notices I don't know
0: I don't know oh wait who said that that was, was some it wasn't an Israeli musician I've heard that quote I love that quote, but it, just to be clear, because there are tiger moms and tiger dads listening to this and they're thinking, oh, my kid has to put in a minimum of five hours of practice per day to be a world-class anything. You're kind of refuting that, no?
1: I think it really is different for different people. That's, I'm not copping out with the question, but I do really, really believe that because as, as I said, I suppose what I'm saying is that in order to get to the standard If you have to practice more than a couple of hours, that's one thing. But when it becomes about really honing the playing, and that's limitless, once you're there, once you're on that level, maintaining it is key. So when I talk about the two hours maintenance, that's what I'm really talking about is that if you need more than a couple of hours maintenance, then it's going to be really hard. It is hard. Any discipline, any physical discipline to maintain that level of physical, because it is athletic. You know, your fingers are, has its muscle memories and all that kind of stuff. And you want, yeah, yeah. yeah. God, why would anybody want to live a life that is so grueling? Maybe that's just, maybe I'm just really lazy. I don't know. You tell me you did it. I I just, I just think that, It's nice to hear the birds sing and I don't want to just be stuck in a room practicing. (laughs) Sometimes you're playing a really beautiful piece of music (laughs) and you want to be in that zone, but no, no, you want to have a life as well. Definitely.
0: Okay. Yeah. (laughs) One of the uh, little interesting factoids that I learned, which just, that was a shock to me, was that, you write it, and this is completely as an aside. I just thought about it as you use the word maintenance. I had no idea to maintain a Strad. It's about five thousand dollars a year minimum. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> like well, I thought you just close the case
1: and put it in a safe place. Well, I mean the insurance alone. Yeah, I mean the insurance alone is is humongous. But then there are also other things. Violins are like thoroughbreds. They take a lot of grooming, especially the very old instruments. And my violin had actually been through the wars, you know, had pieces missing and, and all sorts of things, repairs and stuff. And you can't use just like super glue on it. It's got, a, <laughs> there's a special glue, believe it or not. So, so it's very fragile and any kind of humidity, any kind of tiny knock can just get it out of whack. So yeah, so each time it's, let's going to the gp surgery and having it looked over and maintained sometimes it's got to have minor surgery hopefully it's not going to be major surgery so yeah it takes constant
0: care other than being talented i can completely relate to much of what you're saying so one of the questions that i don't know if you knew or when you finished the manuscript but you allude to the fact that when the strat was recovered when your strad was recovered might have needed like major surgery.
1: It did happen. So did that happen? It did happen. So they needed to take the top off. I think probably, and it's it's difficult to know because obviously I don't know how they kept it or whatever. We do know that a fight broke out between the thieves and the family of the thieves. And this is just a theory that the police have is that somebody grabbed it by the body of the instrument. So normally you just handle the violin by the neck. You almost never touch mm. the body because it's so fragile. And so there was a little crack down the side of the bass bar, I believe. And it had already had surgery on the top right quarter of it. That had been repaired and that that was actually replaced. So yeah, it was pretty major surgery. It recovered though, I hear. Yeah. Wow. I'm just glad it's alive. I mean, as I say, I'm just I'm just glad it's alive. I don't know how often it's being played, but yeah.
0: May, maybe the current owner or the personal assistant of the current owner will hear this podcast and say, yes, I'm going to take the high road. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to give it back to her. And that would be a great story, huh?
1: So of course, of course I do. I mean, let's hope. I don't know. From what I hear, <laughs> he takes great pride in playing it himself. And I, you know, look, I get that for him. It's his own journey with what he will now think of as his violin. And that's why I keep sort of making the analogy like a marriage or a second marriage or a divorce or whatever. Because the last thing, and I'm really trying hard to be like, you know, uh, uh, to have a perspective of this. Because of course I have my own feelings and my own kind of wishes and desires and all that. I do try and really understand that, for him, he has his own relationship with his violin. He doesn't want to think about the ex hanging around waiting for them to split
0: up. Wait, but the metaphor breaks down because this was not a, you know, sort of no-fault divorce. That was stolen from him. It got to him in an unethical, immoral way. So to write the universe and correct the wrong, it should go back to you. From
1: his point of view, I guess he will think that he bought it fair and square at auction. I mean, I look, I'm with you. Of course, I'm with you. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know,
0: spiritually, we belong to each other. But So what you're saying is because it was recovered and he bought it, it's not like yeah. he bought it from the thief and he kept it. He yeah. bought it. It was yeah. a legitimate purchase. Yeah. It's not like it was a hot violin. I, get, I, I see your point, but... Yeah, I don't. Anyway, so.
1: I mean, I struggle with it, Guy. Okay. You know, trust me. I sort of, you know. Well, um, I'm affirming your struggle. Of, yeah.
0: I think your struggle is morally the it's, high ground. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: I suppose I decided that I didn't want the rest of my life to be dominated with feeling feeling the way I, I do. I mean, that's something that I have I live with every day it's true you know I know, I'll never really get it I'll I'm growing to live with that feeling you know I have to I have to have a sense of humor about it you know otherwise gosh I don't want to think about the alternatives you know but yeah it's not something that I want to obsess and dominate I don't want it to be my that was it I didn't want it to be my purpose in life mm-hmm. you know my purpose in life was yes when I was with my violin we had a purpose in life And when I lost my violin, I felt like I lost my purpose in life. And I had to find, I had to rediscover my life, my purpose, what had meaning for me. And I did. And so you you get what I'm saying?
0: Yes, I do, I do. Last topic is a listener, is a talented person, perhaps prodigy, parent of prodigy, friend of prodigy, whatever, friend of highly talented person. And so you certainly have perspective on this. So how do I find the right teacher, coach, mentor?
1: Okay, so speaking from my own experience, I don't regret anything. I don't regret any of the teachers I had because I learned from every single one of them. The only thing that I perhaps would change, not even necessarily learning from a teacher or another, but is actually to recognise sooner if the chemistry doesn't work. Even as I said that, I thought, well, yeah, but how do I, you know, I know now that because the chemistry didn't work and I stayed too long. But I think that in any relationship, particularly with something as important as, because it's a one to one relationship, of course, with, as violence well with a teacher. And so it is very close and it is very intense in a sense. They become almost like a primary caregiver, you know, for your musical life. That's the way I think of it. And if the chemistry doesn't work, then it's not really going to work. So I would say that that's the most important thing is that you click. So for a parent, if they see their child clicking, with that's not to say that the the teacher must never be critical or but that is part of the nurturing process in order to thrive you have to be able to observe and give perspective and actually nurture the talent but that's the key word really isn't it's nurturing it's nurturing the talent and I think that's what I would say is the most important of course I'm stating the obvious really but sometimes it just doesn't work between people and it's not because either party is not talented it just sometimes people don't work and actually sometimes what I certainly learned from my experience of being taught by teachers that I didn't necessarily click with was okay well you don't always get on with everybody in life but actually you learn to rub along but I actually (laughs) know that apart from just rubbing along there's so much greater out there there's so much greater relationships that you can have and that you can go with. But how do you
0: determine, let's say you're, quote unquote, not clicking. How do you determine if it's because it's not the right person for you or it's a growth process and eventually you will click?
1: I think that's the key word, isn't it? It's growth. Obviously, it's a natural process that you will hit a wall at times. But if you keep hitting the the wall, if you keep hitting it, that's not a good sign. So yeah, <laughs> okay. it's the growth process. I, I think it's a very different times now, certainly when I was growing up, because if I look at some of the methods that some of my teachers used. I mean, that would just be illegal now, you know, I mean, like we're talking hardcore. I mean, I don't know about you, but certainly when I was growing up in Korea, uh, I went to school very briefly in Korea, it was still like whacking students on the hands with the corporal punishment and all sorts of bullying tactics. So, <laughs> we don't need to go that far, obviously. <laughs> No, no. <laughs> I laugh but it's actually a very serious subject sorry. Okay
0: so my very last question For you I promise is Your advice for how to get into the flow How to get into the mm, zone Because yeah. when you're up yeah, there yeah. you're in a zone You're in the flow so how do I get in that
1: Search me <laughs> I, I, You just do <laughs> I don't mean to be facetious But you do just do something Well for me I can't speak for everybody of course S- Something just takes over Something, I suppose that's the bit that I call my violin brain. The violin brain just takes over. And the violin is the conduit the music, is the vessel. And and therefore, as an extension, I'm the vessel. But I suppose it really is about just getting out of the way. If you get out huh. of the way, th- huh. then you allow it to happen. Yeah. Huh.
0: That's a great metaphor. So the music is in you and you just gonna have to get out of the way of it. Coming out,
1: it's actually through you. I mean, music is around everywhere. Music is—it's it, just part of the universe. And I suppose that's what I mean by getting out of the way—is like allowing the music to channel through you into the instrument, whether it's your voice or whether it's the voice of the violin or you know, piano. But it is about getting out of the way so the music can go through you. And by that point, hopefully, you've got the muscle memory, so that yes. you've got the skills, you've got the skill set in order to allow that to happen
0: but yeah i think that would be the block well well one of the consequences of this explanation is the realization that it's not about you of course it's about the music right
1: but isn't that the same thing about everything it's not to say that we have to have a sense of self of course i'm not saying that because otherwise <laughs> Uh, we'd be like babies with absolutely no concept of separation or anything like that. I'm not saying that's a great state, but I would love to be a baby again. And and I think the only (laughs) time that we ever really experience that is when we experience different cultures for the first time or different countries for the first time. And I always think that about the baby brain kicking in. So like whenever I go to a new country or explore a, a different language or anything like that, it's like the baby brain kicks in and you suddenly feel yourself so like it's just the wonderment of you feel so empowered but vulnerable at the same time because you know because you're not a baby anymore you know Uh, so there is a sense of awareness there but I think that's exactly it and it's a state that is so inspiring
0: I know the feeling I think you do do, I think we all do though
1: right (laughs) that's the other thing actually about the idea that I just think everybody experiences the same thing I really do it's just that everybody has different skill sets my skill set happens to be playing the violin and, and being a musician and I always say I'm like a one-trick pony that is my way of communicating with the world but everybody has their own way of communicating with the world and I think that really is exactly what you're talking about that feeling of just something greater than you or me or it's yeah we <laughs> don't need to say any more <laughs>
0: on it it's <laughs> I get it it's all that I get it. I get it. I absolutely get it. <laughs> I have to say that this has been a most remarkable interview. This is very I'll enjoyable. I'll take that as a compliment. You should. And I hope you, I, you know, I hope you enjoyed it too. <laughs> I hope we went to areas that no one has ever asked you about.
1: That was only my hesitation actually, because I was like, wow, you are so good at just get, getting right in there. <laughs> but I think, you know what? That was the other thing I learned about the book was that I was so scared. I was so frightened of writing things that I thought were, you know, secret and private and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And of course I didn't I don't say everything, because some things you do want to keep private. But you know, there were so many things like that, oh I can't see anything. And then I realized that do you know what? It's not that big a deal. And everybody feels this anyway. And <laughs> that was that was the great realization about writing this book. It's like everybody actually Everybody has these secrets, which is that we, I, mean, I can only speak for myself, but I think I just want to he- keep that veneer between not wanting to express too much emotion and not having the courage to actually say, this is how I feel. This is how I feel. I don't know whether that's the Asian thing in me either, by the way. My mother always <laughs> says, keep face. And of course, I live in England. And it's the combination of having a Korean mother and having an English culture. We're, we're a little bit more reserved here. You know?
0: <laughs> I, I think you... You threaded the needle. Listen, I hope my former guests don't listen to this, but let me think about this. So I've had about 140 guests. Not all of them have written a book, but let's say there's 100 books involved. This book here, (laughs) this is the first one I'm going to tell my wife, you have got to read this book.
1: (laughs) That means so much. Thank you.
0: This is a brilliant book. I just... I don't care if there's no subheads, <laughs> bullet points.
1: You <laughs> see, now you know how I go into a meeting. No bullet points.
0: <laughs> that's right. Guy Kawasaki said there were no subheads and bullet points, and that's okay. That's how good this book I is. I think
1: that's going to be. The, Maybe yeah, I just, should write just, that just,
0: review for you on that's Amazon. That's <laughs> going to
1: be my next book title. No bullets. No bullet points. What? No, no bullets? <laughs> no bullets? No. That's love it. <laughs>
0: well the nra will hate you but okay and you know what i don't know who picked the title but the title is brilliant one word gone that is a freaking truly brilliant title really well
1: that came thank you that came later that came later that was actually because those were the words that i said when my violin was gone it's gone it's gone the unstrung bit, actually, I have to credit my editor for. Because originally it was gone, a girl, a violin, a life. And she added unstrung. That's
0: clever. Yeah. That's clever. Unstrung. Okay. That's icing on the cake, but the cake is gone. And uh, if nothing else, whenever I sit in print Manger, I'm, I'm going to wrap my backpack little strap around my leg <laughs> how's that <laughs>
1: yeah yeah it took me a long time to go to Pret-a-Manger uh, haven't gone back to that one I have to say it's going to take me longer to get back to that one but they do great sandwiches so what can I say
0: <laughs> <laughs> but just to show you you know the the depths of my culinary taste buds <laughs> I have to say that my my favorite place to eat in London is Wagamama. I just love Wagamama. Is that a I bad thing? I love
1: Wagamama. Yeah.
0: Do you have that in America? Uh, I think there's one in Boston, but I, okay. w- when I'm in London, I can eat Wagamama, Wagamama every Wagamama. day. I swear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've got one just down the road. Oh.
1: It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, you live yeah. one near Suffrages? No, oh. no, 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 no. I live miles away from Southwark's. Oh. I I live um, I live just by the Portobello Road.
0: Is it costly to live near Portobello Road because you go every week? The thing
1: is- <laughs> I, you know, uh, London. London is London. Um, but during lockdown, gosh, the restaurants. I mean, with with uh, delivery, other delivery companies are available. We're um, just thriving with the uh, you know. Yeah. delivery and things like that so i discovered places like you know like local places like wagamamas and you know i
0: love Wagamama.
1: sushi bento and you know tokyo there's there's an amazing place called i think it's called eat tokyo
0: oh really just around
1: the corner uh, which is absolutely fantastic yeah that- it's great if you come to london you must come to my local okay. Wagamama. i'll take you You to and the local i will Wagamama. go to wagamamas
0: <laughs> and if you come to the san francisco area i will take you surfing how's that
1: Oh, I'd love that. Okay. I would absolutely love that. Okay. Yeah, I've never been. I've never been. And then we'll we can um,
0: we can recreate the Washington Post. I hope this is a true story. The Washington Post Joshua Bell story about how he went into the, did you ever hear this theory? This story that the Washington Post, they tried his experiment where they had Joshua Bell play the violin in the DC Metro so we'll have you play violin on the cliff at Santa Cruz and we'll see if people (laughs) recognize us they'll probably say oh that's a really talented Asian violinist over there (laughs) and it's freaking I bet he hadn't practiced
1: that day I'm sure that's the reason why I bet he played badly on purpose or something
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's why he didn't get tips so isn't this a fascinating story I hope it's a movie someday The Queen's Gambit meets Stradivarius. The lesson of Min's story may be that sometimes you just have to move on. But I ask you a theoretical question. Do you think the current owner of the Stradivarius should return it to Min? I do. I'm Guy Kawasaki. This is Remarkable People. My thanks to Jeff C., Peg Fitzpatrick, Shannon Hernandez, The drop-in queen of California, Madison Nismer, Alexis Nishimura, and Luis Nose Rider Magana. Until next time, mahalo and aloha. This is Remarkable People.